yourself for a minute in a place with almost no electricity. The grid is down. Any power probably comes from a generator. That means diesel is really important. And places like hospitals need fuel. But what if you could use solar power to create a little microgrid right where you need it? So when you look at something like a microgrid, you really have the ability to isolate certain loads like a hospital or a government building. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And that theoretical situation isn't so theoretical in Puerto Rico. That guy you just heard talking, his company is on the ground there right now, working on solar power. And we're going to get to that story, plus a report from around the island in just a bit. But we're going to start with the numbers on gun violence. According to the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit group, there have been 47,237 gun violence incidents in the U.S. this year. That means deaths and injuries, which they count using a bunch of different sources. And after something like the shooting in Las Vegas, Americans have a lot of questions about guns. The catch is numbers and data are hard to come by. There are groups like the Gun Violence Archive, then there's law enforcement. But federal research dollars into gun violence are extremely limited right now. Because back in 1996, federal money for the Centers for Disease Control to study gun violence dried up. At the time, Mark Rosenberg was running the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control there. I asked him to tell me what happened. Well, a few things happened. There was an attack on behalf of the NRA that was led by a congressman from rural Arkansas, a congressman named Jay Dickey. Yeah. And at an appropriations hearing, they basically ambushed the director of CDC and myself. And after that hearing, they succeeded in taking away $2.6 million, which was everything that we were using for gun violence prevention research And they also did something else. They passed some appropriations language. And it said, none of the funds that go to CDC shall be used to promote or advocate gun control. Now, it did not ban federally funded research. But it said, basically, we could not lobby for gun control legislation. Now, CDC was not in the business of lobbying for gun control legislation. We were in the business of doing research but it really sent a chill throughout the system. Well, you know, $2.6 million, we're a marketplace, we like to look at the numbers, in the grand context of the federal budget, that's a tiny amount of money. But I'm curious from your standpoint, what are the implications of taking away, you know, $2.5 million? People usually think that a research program will grow with time as understanding bills and people start to see that you're getting good results. Programs usually grow. The message here was not only is this program not going to grow, but it's not going to exist. There's not going to be any funding for extramural research on the topic of gun violence prevention. And it had a chilling effect beyond just the injury center. It went to other agencies that thought that they might look at the relationship, say, of alcohol use and gun violence or drug abuse and gun violence, even at the National Institute of Justice Uh, It chilled their order for pursuing this area. You know, one question I have looking at this now, talking about guns in America is so fraught, but what would you study if you could? You know, what, what would you study now? Well, I think it's not really rocket science, but there's basically four questions that we need to answer if we want to have an impact on reducing gun violence. 
The first question is, what's the problem? How many people get shot? Who are they? Where? When? How does it happen? With what kind of guns? What's the relationship between the shooter and the victim, or if it's suicide? The second question you want to answer is, what are the causes? What's the role of mental illness? What's the role of drugs? What's the role of domestic violence? What's the role of terrorism? The third question is, what works to prevent it? What might stop this gun violence from even happening? What kind of things can we test? And that's really important. And the fourth question is, how do you do it? Once you have a program that works, how do you scale it up and how do you implement the results? The federal government is, is not the only player in town. I mean, there are think tanks, there are universities, there are, you know, are all sorts of entities that could do private research. D- did taking the money away from federal research affect what other entities did? It did. I think it had a chilling effect across the board. Even foundations that had been supporting it and had started to make this a priority were undermined and cut back. And the message went out that this is not a welcome area for researchers because your research and your funding are going to be much more difficult than other areas. The research arena is a marketplace, and people go to places where they can be funded to do their work. Just one last question before I let you go. You and Jay Dickey became good friends. He died not too long ago. Um, I'm curious what he told you in terms of his thoughts on this issue. I gather his mind changed a little bit uh, toward the latter part of his life. His mind changed a lot, and we became very close friends, and we trusted each other, so we could talk to each other a lot about this. Jay came to feel that the kind of gun violence we were seeing, the increase in mass shootings, this was really crazy. And what was crazy, not that it went on, but that we weren't doing anything about it. And he came to believe in the value of research. He saw what research did to reduce motor vehicle crashes and motor vehicle-related deaths way, way down, saving hundreds of thousands of people without having to ban cars. And he came to see that we could do the same thing. We could save hundreds of thousands of lives without banning guns. Mark Rosenberg, thank you so much for your time. You are very welcome. depend on Social Security, October is a big deal. That's when the Social Security Administration makes its annual cost of living adjustment, or COLA. Basically, they change the amount beneficiaries get depending on inflation. The new checks will start in January, and that means a lot for Florence Carlson. She moved to Florida 13 years ago with her husband. So we were both collecting Social Security, and when he died, then I continued to take his Social Security, and it probably was very little less than what I'm getting now, because as you know, through the years, Social Security has not kept up with, you know, with the cost of living. Carlson's 90 now. She lives in a senior community, which she likes, but it isn't cheap. She has to pay for internet, car insurance, homeowner's insurance, groceries— So how far does her Social Security go? Let me see. I'm going to take a paper and pencil and do a quick calculation. 
Carlson gets okay. about $1,150 a week. About $14,000 a year. She calculated her expenses to be about $60,000 a year. And when you put that up against how much she gets from Social Security... Uh, so maybe 22%. And maybe a tad higher. And Carlson doesn't have any other income, though she has savings. So where did that $1,150 number come from anyway? Stay with me here. The Social Security Administration uses an inflation measure called the Consumer Price Index for Wage Earners and Clerical Workers – CPIW for short. Catchy, huh? So the CPIW looks at the cost of a whole basket of goods and says, all right, this is how much someone who's working would pay for these things. Exactly. And that really is where the issue about whether it's appropriate for Social Security beneficiaries comes in, because the basket of goods that is made up of the CPI is reflective of the consumption patterns of workers and not retirees. That's Gary Koenig, an economist at the AARP. He says the CBIW doesn't do a good job adjusting for what retirees spend money on, like prescription drugs. And that is the big driver of the difference between this, using a CPIE, Consumer Price Index, for older Americans versus what's currently used with the CPIW. Aha. You heard Koenig say CPIE. Well, so he supports that. It's a different way of calculating Social Security payments. CPIE stands for the Experimental Consumer Price Index for the Elderly, and it's what it sounds like. If you look at someone who receives Social Security benefits for, let's say, 20 years, moving to an index that is more reflective of the purchasing power of older Americans, like the CPIE, would translate into about a 4% higher benefit than they would under the current COLA. A reminder, COLA is the cost of living adjustment. It is acronym city here today. So this sounds great, but it's a tough sell because the Social Security Trust Fund will run out by 2034. There will still be money coming in, but not enough to pay out the benefits people are used to. And some economists say that using the CPIE, well, that could speed up the end of the trust fund because the benefits could be more generous. Plus, remember, it's an experiment. It's an experimental measure. The BLS is clear that it is not a fully baked official measure of inflation. Ah, acronym city. BLS is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that was Andrew Biggs, a conservative economist at the American Enterprise Institute. For him, the CPIE is just a benefits increase that hasn't been fully thought out. There are other measures of inflation, including what's called the chain-weighted CPI, that are superior in the sense that they better account for how people change their purchasing habits in, in response to changing prices. For example, if one drug becomes more expensive, then someone might just switch to a cheaper brand. The CPIE doesn't measure this. And there are even more ways to measure all this stuff. And guess what? We will get into more acronyms in a later episode. But the main point for recipients like Florence Carlson is whether Social Security actually makes people feel secure. I feel as though my money is just diminishing monthly. I just continually have to draw on whatever capital I have left. And if I don't live too much longer, then that'll be fine. But if I do, I actually could run out of money probably in, I don't know, maybe five or six years. Certainly, I, I can't think of anybody who could live on Social Security. If you want to share your story about living on Social Security or how you change it for the future, get in touch. You can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. 
Now we're going to turn to Puerto Rico. It's been more than two weeks since Hurricane Maria hit. The island is still nearly blacked out. Very few people have electricity. And there's a chance that solar power could help. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, we're going to hear from the BBC's Alim Makbul in San Juan. We caught up with him just outside the main FEMA center there. And I asked about how people are dealing with just everyday stuff right now. During the day, you can drive around and see the evidence that that hurricane tore across uh, Puerto Rico uh, because of damaged buildings. There's still debris everywhere you look. In the evening, you go around, and it's so strange in a place like San Juan to look at the skyline and see it pitch black. Uh, You know, it is still uh, well over 90% of this country that does not have power, and that is having a massive impact. So... You don't have uh, water pumped to your house. You're not able to get cash out of the machines. So the way people are getting through it is, is for the most part, joining together. Churches are helping out. Neighbors are helping out. Neighbors taking in people who need accommodation. But it's really tough. Mm. You mentioned cash. And obviously, without power, ATMs aren't working. How does that play out? I mean, are people bartering for things? How does the economy function, if at all? It's really not functioning. I mean, obviously, very little is open in the way of offices, uh, restaurants, you know, all all these kind of establishments aren't able to, to open. I mean, it is a lot of IOUs. I mean, we've even had journalist teams who've stayed at hotels, you know, often without power and water who have said, look, we'll have to pay you sometime in the future. The credit card machines are not working. And everybody sort of understands it. There's, you know, people understand that the situation is having an impact. And so, uh, you know, they have to allow for different ways of doing things during this time. The problem is they don't know when this is all going to end. We're going to talk in a little bit about solar power and and how that is figured into some parts of the recovery effort. But... For people who do have generators, they need diesel for those to run on. Um, What kind of market is there for diesel right now? What are people paying for that if they can get it? So the, the prices have certainly been hiked up. There's no question about that. However, in the time that we've been here, it does appear that the availability of diesel Uh, has got better. Hmm. So that is the one positive we can say about uh, the the last few days. When we first uh, got here, I mean, the lines at uh, at gas stations were just extraordinary, and and, and people were not even being allowed in some places to come with their cars. They could just come and get a jerry can full of fuel, and that was it. You have been outside of San Juan. What does the infrastructure look like outside of big metropolitan areas, and how are people coping? Yes, we traveled uh, right across uh, the island. Uh, We went from uh, San Juan on the north coast down to Ponce on the south coast. People are helping themselves. All of the help is really concentrated in San Juan. And it is the biggest urban center. That's fair enough. But a lot of the people we spoke to outside of San Juan have said they haven't seen any help come their way. And that's local government help as well as uh, U.S. emergency workers or or U.S. uh, 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 military personnel. There's been a lot of back and forth about Puerto Rico's debt situation. The island has some $70 billion in debt. Um, For ordinary people in Puerto Rico, how did the financial situation 
affect their everyday lives e- even before the hurricane hit? You know, we've suggested, could this be an opportunity to, to rebuild, to, to, to build infrastructure in, in a way that could help move things forward, be, in, a, in the end, beneficial for uh, Puerto Rico and its economy? It's very, very tough for people to see things in those kind of terms because yeah. they just don't see where that kind of uh, investment is going to come from. We're talking about figures of around... $30 billion dollars uh, for Puerto Rico to recover even to where it was. Right now, this is about the pressing issues of getting through each day without power, without water, without mobile phone communications. It's really hard for people to see past that. And that's the BBC's Alim Makbul in San Juan. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Good to be with you. McBool talk about the lack of electricity. And at the top of the show, we played you a clip from someone working to get more solar power to the island, not just as a disaster response, but a way to have a potentially more robust system made of several mini electric grids instead of one big one. Generate Capital is just one company founding some of this work, and Jigar Shah is their president and co-founder. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can you run me through kind of what the pre-hurricane solar landscape was in Puerto Rico, what you guys have, and kind of just what else is out there? Well, over the past 10 years, uh, the solar industry has installed a lot of solar in Puerto Rico. So thousands of homes, hundreds of businesses, and so about 88 megawatts of rooftop solar and about 125 megawatts of ground-mounted utility-scale solar. So the solar industry's got you know, 80 companies or so that are active in Puerto Rico, and we own a lot of uh, commercial rooftop projects. And what sort of state are they in right now? Uh, depends. One of them was pretty much completely destroyed. I think 85% of the panels were strewn about. Um, one of them is basically functioning. So um, so that one's great. And, um, and all of them are getting sort of the repair work that they need to to start uh, providing power for those businesses. One of the reasons we're talking to you is that you wrote this really interesting essay about how solar power can work in disaster response. You know, if you look at Puerto Rico right now, obviously the main energy grid is really not working. How could solar power step in here? You advocated something called microgrids. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I think it's important to note that that when the grid goes down, um, the entire grid really has to be up and running together, right? You can't have a piece of it up and the other piece of it down because the challenge with that is that, you know, electricity flows wherever it wants to go. So when you look at something like a microgrid, you really have the ability to isolate certain loads like a hospital or a government building or a resort where relief workers have to um, stay and you really can make sure that they are up and running and their neighbors are up and running. And that's where the power of the microgrid really comes from. I mean, I'm almost envisioning like sort of little, I know this is weird, but little jungle gyms of electricity around specific places. 
Yeah, I think that the interesting thing is that this is a solution set that's been around for 25 years. So we're not talking about something new. And in fact, many European utilities as well as Japanese utilities are using microgrids to make their grids um, for the mainland more reliable. So just to give you a stat, um, in Japan, their main utility has only four minutes of outages per year. Where the average U.S. utility in in the continental United States has 179 minutes of outages, and so microgrids wow. are used to provide reliability. And you know, in Puerto Rico, they can do the same. Well, what would it take, and what would it cost to to do that in Puerto Rico? Well, you know, the estimates are all over the map right now on rebuilding the grid, but um, you know, some of the estimates are up to four billion dollars to re- rebuild the Prepa grid. Uh, that's the Puerto Rican utility company. And the microgrid solution would cost half that. So it would actually be half the price of rebuilding the current grid in its current form. And it would provide power at much lower cost than the 20 to 30 cents per kilowatt hour that they were paying for power. Presumably you'd, you'd need to put a lot of capital in up front though, wouldn't you? Yeah, something on the order of probably $2 billion. But but that $2 billion is something they're going to spend anyway to rebuild the grid. And, you know, the question really is, would they be willing to leapfrog 1970s technology, which is what they're rebuilding right now, into modern 21st century technology? Is that a serious conversation that's happening? I mean, after all, you guys are, a, you know, a pretty significant company in this space. It certainly is. I mean, and I've been having this conversation for over 10 years in various forms through the Rocky Mountain Institute and, you know, the Carbon War Room. Richard Branson has taken a big leadership role by, you know, taking his island 100% renewable energy through the work of NRG. And so there's a lot of companies, ABB, Siemens, GE, who have technology in this area who have not yet been asked to deploy these kinds of solutions at scale. Is solar power and and would a solar powered microgrid be any hardier than conventional you know electrical infrastructure or or would you have the same kinds of issues just a slightly different flavor you know in the aftermath of another serious storm? Well, I think it's very clear that 185 mile an hour winds would affect any type of power infrastructure. But the beauty of a microgrid is that can it can be fixed within days, not months. And so you now have the ability to repair, you know, solar projects, for instance, that have been damaged in Puerto Rico within days. Um, and that's happening right now. Um, you know, one of the companies who owns the most residential system, Sunova, um, is going in and adding batteries to a lot of their projects uh, so that those projects can be up and running quickly. And so these are the kinds of things that can be done quickly. I, I certainly don't think any power infrastructure would be immune to 185 mile an hour winds. When you talk to other people in the private sector, even before the storm, has there been um, hesitance to get involved because of the debt situation or is that not a factor? Well, the debt situation is going to be problematic just because there's another group of people that are um, stakeholders here that are you know, asking a bunch of questions. And then you certainly have the financial oversight board that was put in place by the Obama administration that also has to be dealt with. And so there's layers here of complexity. That being said, I think everyone wants to see Puerto Rico get back on their feet. And so I think there's some shared um, goal setting here. Um, I don't think anyone wants to see, you know, one to two million people move 
out of Puerto Rico into Florida or New York. Jigger Shaw is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. Thank you. Thanks for all of your interest in Puerto Rico. Honestly, it can be hard to keep up with the number of news stories about Facebook and the influence it has over our daily lives. Just this week, CNN reported that Facebook ads linked to Russia were targeted at people in Michigan and Wisconsin in last year's presidential campaign. Targeted political ads make business sense in the same way I get served ads for comfortable shoes and dog toys, stuff I buy a lot of. Well, Facebook can show political ads to a select but highly engaged group of people. And unlike ads for politicians or causes in print, TV or on the radio, they're not fact-checked, and it's often not clear who paid for them. And remember, since they're so targeted, what you see is different from what I see and from what your neighbor sees, etc. So the news organization ProPublica built a tool that makes things more transparent. It's called the Political Ad Collector, or PAC. Get it? Anyway, Julia Angwin is a senior reporter at ProPublica, and I asked her to explain how it works. If you put this little bit of software on your computer, what happens is when you go to Facebook and you open up your page, it will grab the ads and try to check which ones are political ads. And then it asks you, hey, these are the ones we think are political. Are we right? And then when you say yes, it sends them off to our little database. And then we also show you ads that other people are seeing that are political. So it says ads I'm seeing and then the ads other people are seeing that are political. So you get a sense of like what else is happening on Facebook that isn't being targeted to you. You tested this tool out during the German elections. What did you find? Yeah, we thought we would start with the German elections and just see if we were able to collect a bunch of ads. And we were. We got about several hundred ads and we looked through them and saw that there were, you know, there were a lot of things that were not unexpected. It wasn't a particularly, you know, controversial election by German standards. Uh, So there were the expected ads where, you know, candidates were saying things that they had said otherwise, but we did see some fake ads. So some Hmm. people, there was a group that was pretending that it was one of the political parties and then and making ads, but it wasn't actually the political party. What is happening with political ads on Facebook? Why is your experience, say, so completely different from mine, you know, when we go and look at our feeds? The reason Facebook is so powerful and makes so much money as an advertiser is because they have this incredible ability to target ads to these tiny audiences. So if an advertiser, you know, a politician wants to reach only people who like cigars, have a hamster and live in a particular zip code, they will find them and they'll be able to serve ads to them. So what that means is that ads are sort of micro-targeted in a way that really it could be that just a handful of people really ever see them and no one else does. And what me and my colleagues were wondering about was, given that ability, are politicians abusing it? Could they say one thing to the hamster lovers and one thing to the, you know, guinea pig lovers? And, you know, (laughs) I know this analogy is kind of idiotic, but, um, you know, could they be telling different people different things and, um, would we be able to know about that? If we didn't collect these ads, how would we ever know? Why are hyper-targeted ads like this? I mean, 
Why are they so valuable to, to politicians, to campaigns, and to issue groups? I mean, one reason they're so valuable to campaigns is they're really cheap. I mean, you can buy ads for as little as $5 or $10 to reach a really small group of people, and you could just run them for a few hours. So, you know, there's not that many ad buys you can do out there that are that small. So you could really test a message with a small group. You know, maybe you know that one particular kind of person is really your core you could send that message out, see how well it does, and then broaden out. So it gives you the ability to test. You know, there were some stories during the 2016 presidential election that at some points um, the Trump team had maybe thousands of different ads out on Facebook trying out different messages to see which one would resonate. And so now we don't know if those stories are true because no one actually could collect all those ads then. But that was what was said. And that was one reason we were inspired to do this because we thought, well, if there are thousands of messages out there, what do they say? You know, thinking about how many people use Facebook and how integral it is and, you know, other internet services are to people's lives, how might the regulatory environment around this change, is it going to change when, you know, we go forward? After all, there are more elections coming. Yeah, I mean, the Federal Election Commission has just said that it will reopen its discussion about whether online advertising needs to include disclosures of who paid for the ad, which is required in print and TV and radio. But um, the Election Commission has basically deadlocked on whether that's a requirement for internet advertising. So they've reopened that discussion. And I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if they did say that the disclosure was required now that online advertising is so much more crucial to political campaigns than it was at the time that they first started discussing it. But that said, those rules are pretty limited. They often apply only during the last 30 or 60 days of an election. And since our election cycles are so um, long, you know, it still means that a lot of ads would not have that disclosure. Julia Angwin, senior reporter at ProPublica, thank you so much. Thank you. Numbers are the backbone of what we do here. We love them, and they are everywhere. So here are Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez to take us through this week's news by the numbers. Sarah, kick it off. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... $39 billion. That's how many dollars are tied up in the payday loan business. You see these places everywhere. They're storefronts offering small-dollar, high-interest loans to be paid back in up to two weeks. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has finalized new rules designed to keep customers from racking up huge amounts of debt. Lenders are decrying the decision, saying borrowers know what they're committing to and that the new rules could put stores out of business. Three billion. That's many Yahoo accounts were hacked in security breach, according to Verizon. Last year, Yahoo reported that 1 billion accounts had data stolen in 2013, but that number has expanded to include every single account. So if you had a Yahoo, Flickr, or Tumblr account in August 2013, looking at you, Sarah, chances are you were hacked. Thanks for dragging me, Tony. Our next number is $11. That's the new price of your Netflix subscription, probably. Netflix raised the price on its most popular streaming package from $9.99 to $10.99. 
It's estimated to affect about 53 million people worldwide. So if you're wondering if that's you, yeah, it probably is. That's the second time Netflix has raised prices in the past year. Analysts blame the hike on the streaming service investing almost $16 billion in original programming. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm still going to borrow someone's password. Yeah, same. During the congressional fights over repealing Obamacare, there was another healthcare casualty, the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP for short. It expired at the end of September. CHIP helps insure almost 9 million children. I'm like, whoa, my, fa- my kids are going to lose health insurance, and I don't think anybody around here knows about this. Rebecca Miller is from Big Fork, Montana. Her two children are covered under the Healthy Montana Kids Program. It's Montana's version of CHIP, and it's been crucial for her family. My husband is a pastor of a small congregation. I work part-time as an editor, and so I don't make a heap of a lot of money either. But we make too much for, you know, poverty assistance, but we make too little to pay for our health bills adequately. When he was a toddler, Miller's son was diagnosed with C. diff, which is a potentially life-threatening infection. Miller was able to afford his emergency care because of CHIP. When the program's funding expired, she was shocked. It's hard to even put yourself in that space of what are, like, what are we going to do, all of these families? It has had an enormous impact, according to all research that's been done on insurance coverage for children. That's Sarah Rosenbaum. She's a health policy professor at George Washington University, and she says CHIP is generally thought of as a success. It has dropped the number of uh, the proportion of uninsured children in the United States from almost 14 percent to fewer than one in 20. Uh, Something under 5 percent of children have no insurance. We asked Rosenbaum to walk us through what could happen now that funding has expired. It means states, she says, don't get their federal CHIP money. In most states, CHIP funding is used to expand Medicaid, and it gets thrown into the pot with the state Medicaid money. For those children who are in the Medicaid expansion CHIP, they continue to get their coverage, but the states start losing a lot of money. And states haven't budgeted for these kinds of losses. So that could mean they lose money in their Medicaid programs. If you have a kid on CHIP in one of these states, though, you probably won't notice a difference right now. Some states, though, don't use CHIP to expand Medicaid. Instead, CHIP is a standalone program. And we asked Rosenbaum what happens to those kids. In those states, and there are many of them, that cover some CHIP children through a separate program, when the money runs out, there's no Medicaid safety net. You know, there's nothing to pick up the funding. And in a Medicaid situation, the Medicaid, the normal Medicaid funding kicks in. You just don't get as much of it. In a separate CHIP situation like Utah or Alabama or other states that have separate programs, there's no money. And so that's why, for example, Utah has already formally notified the federal government that it can't continue to enroll children. It has a separate program. And for those children, there's no more chip if the money goes away. When would that happen? Well, the Medicaid Commission, which advises Congress, let let Congress know over the summer that the first states would start to feel the effects of this this quarter, beginning October 1. But the big tranche of states losing funds and therefore potentially having to 
eliminate their programs entirely or start making other cuts to Medicaid to offset the loss of funding will happen in the winter and spring. You know, one of the things I'm surprised by, and and we should be clear, you worked in the uh, Clinton administration, but CHIP has always had quite broad bipartisan support. How did we end up in a situation where the funding ran out? Right now, we are at a point, I think, where everything, including a totally bipartisan issue such as insurance coverage for children or there's a companion dilemma pending, which is continued funding for community health centers, also a very popular program. They're caught in this dilemma over how to pay for these really modest uh, programs that everybody agrees do a great job and should exist. What do you do right now if you have a kid who is insured through CHIP? You should, I think, continue to rely on your insurance coverage. I have no doubt that in the end, Congress will come through. I think they realize that this is such a fundamental commitment to the nation. But if you are a parent in, say, Utah, obviously um, there is some concern that Congress will not act quickly enough for your coverage to continue. And I think the time-honored thing for people to do uh, when they are participating in a program that is supported by government and working well, um, as we've seen with Medicare, as we've seen with marketplace coverage and Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act, I think, you know, it's time for parents to make their feelings known. You know, a lot of states have balanced budget amendments that means, you know, if if they don't get federal money for something they have to cut elsewhere. Is that a factor here? States depend on federal CHIP funds. There are states now in which the CHIP funding represents the entire cost of the program. And so if this money goes away, I mean, that's enough money in their fiscal year. Bear in mind that most states are, you know, all already in fiscal 18. They have planned on this money. There's no making up millions and millions of dollars of lost funding, as as Utah is showing. I mean, states will just start to shut the program down. The federal government can't force a state to keep a separate chip program going because it's, you know, it can't make the payments. Sarah Rosenbaum, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Maybe you've spent a recent weekend at a fair, took your kids on rides, ate a funnel cake. You may not have realized that you were in the middle of a story about immigration, specifically seasonal legal immigration, what's known as the H-2B visa program. For fairs and carnivals, that means a lot of visas for workers who come up from Mexico. Jamie Sisley made a documentary about this, and it's called Farewell Ferris Wheel. And I asked him to explain how the carnival owners use the visa program. They have to start with a demonstrated need, and that's pretty laborious. I mean, you have to show, you have to publish newspaper articles, physical newspaper articles still. Um, You have to prove that nobody um, was able to sort of take those positions. And then once there's that demonstrated need on the on the worker's side, you you have to actually get a visa. And and those visas are pretty difficult to get because they're very competitive. There's a lot to it. 
One of the most fascinating parts of this film is that it focuses on one guy who is kind of the link between workers and the carnivals who who need labor, this guy, uh, Jim Judkins. And I want to play a clip from him and then talk about him a little bit. Uh, let's play it. I'm the person that processes 81% of all the H2B visas for the outdoor entertainment industry in the country. I didn't realize that I handled such a large percentage. 81% is a staggering amount. Um, how many people d- does that mean? You know, who who Jim is bringing into this country to do this work? Well, again, it fluctuates, but typically in the carnival industry, it's anywhere between three to 5,000 people a year is, is um, that's who come up on these visas. Um, and, and that sort of percentage we found was sort of typical for a lot of these industries. Generally, um, it's really organic. It starts, you know, a recruiter will maybe they'll work for a carnival or a circus uh, or another industry and they'll just they'll find somebody that they they're close to. They come up for the visa and then their brother or their uncle or their sister, um, you know, is, is used as a referral. And it just sort of trickles down from there. And that's what happened in Jim's case. There is a really interesting moment toward the end of this film where there's like a banquet uh, and celebration for these workers. And someone refers to them as the Jim Judkins workforce family. And it's it's kind of a weird moment because it gets at this duality of, you know, he is facilitating their entry into the U.S., but is he a fair broker? Who does he work for, et cetera? Um, There's a quote from one of the workers who says, you know, we don't necessarily like him. But we need him. What what is his business, and and how do people like Jim Judkins for the carnival industry or other industries like how do they function? Well, I I think it starts in terms of Jim. It starts with a really really deep love of the circus and carnival. Uh, Jim Jim doesn't have you know a, a wife and kids. The, the carnival is his life, and I think that. If you hear it from his point of view, he's sort of taken it upon himself to sort of help save the carnival industry because, you know, in his eyes and a lot of the employer's eyes, if it wasn't for these workers, uh, the, the carnival just wouldn't be able to sort of subsist. Uh, on the other hand, p- people look at the H2B as, as a way to sort of artificially keep costs down and they, they look at people like Jim and other recruiters you know, someone is, is someone who sort of helps promulgate that. And so it really does depend on your point of view. You followed this group of workers uh, coming up for seasonal work. But what has their experience been like, you know, during the time that you followed them? Generally speaking, the workers are very happy to come up. A lot of Americans would sort of shake their heads and say, you know, I would never want to take down rides or travel around the country or live in these bunkhouses. But to these workers, the work's comparable, if not maybe a little bit easier than trying to... uh, pick oranges and take them down uh, mountains. I want to play a clip from Gregorio, who has worked several seasons in the U.S., and and he talks about the financial benefit of coming in uh, to do this work. I want to play that one now. Somos escasos recursos, pero lo poquito que he hecho, a veces me pienso que es bastante lo que he hecho. 
I mean, he says that, you know, since he did this work, he was able to buy a house. It's a beautiful feeling. Migrant workers, as you mentioned, earn around $350, $360 a week. How much does that buy you when you are sending money home? And are the concerns that you have heard from some of these migrant worker advocacy groups, are they fair about the low wages? To your first question, it goes, the money goes a long way into Lapacoyan. You know, we followed Gregorio for several years, um, and we followed another worker, Florencio, and, and both of them, their, their lives improved dramatically as a result of, of coming up and working at the carnivals. In terms of uh, whether the workers' rights group's concerns about wages is valid, it's tough because the carnival industry is a little, a little strange because they have a weekly wage that's, that's sort of been on the books for years and years. The idea being that it's outdoor amusement and sometimes it rains, sometimes there's weather. Some, there's, there's certain factors that contribute to this idea that, that if they did work an hourly wage, they wouldn't get paid as much. We did find kind of in our experience that the workers work a lot of hours, and I'm, I'm not sure if, if they're getting paid as much under this weekly wage as they would if they were being paid hourly. I want to play uh, one more clip from the film, which sort of gets at this issue of money and enforcement behind regulation. It would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for us to continue to operate successfully without the H2B worker. They are the lifeblood of our seasonal business. I think there's a moral component to um, the conditions that we allow people to work under in the United States. And there will always be an endless supply of people from other countries who are willing to come here and consider it even a good deal to make one or two dollars an hour and to suffer under what we might regard as appalling circumstances. Shouldn't it be the people's decision to make? We're not forcing them here, are we? They're coming here freely. Okay, so you have kind of all of the perspectives there, the business perspective from Dan Musser from the Grand Hotel in Michigan, Mary Bauer from the Southern Poverty Law Center, and then Congressman uh, Todd Rakita from Indiana. You know, you really took a broad view looking at kind of how all of this stuff comes together. Does Congressman Rokita have a point that that there is free will involved here and there is, as we heard from Gregorio, you know, money to be made in this industry or, you know, do, do the opponents have a point? Certainly the workers have a choice as to whether or not they want to come up, but there's a certain human rights component here that, that people should meet, you know, regardless of if there's a law to it or not. I understand that um, migrant workers don't vote and they're not American citizens, but they're still working up here and American citizens are benefiting off of their work. You know, ultimately, Congress did increase the number of H-2B visas uh, allowed each year, you know, as we talked about at the beginning. But when you look at the carnival industry, is that going to be enough to, to keep them afloat? We didn't find any carnival owners that were, you know, <laughs> rich. They're, they're, they're all usually three, four generation deep organizations that are having a lot of trouble staying afloat. But I do think they would still survive if, if they didn't have these visas in place. Jamie Sisley and Miguel Martinez made Farewell Ferris Wheel. It airs October 10th as part of the World Channel's America Reframed series. Thanks for talking with me. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Coming up next week on Marketplace Weekend, 
what happens when 15,000 kids can't go to school because of a cyber attack? More than 30 schools across Flathead County were canceled. Activities were canceled. There was no um, activities or anyone allowed to go to any of the school buildings while law enforcement investigated the situation. We look into the cost of keeping hackers out of the education system. And that is our show for this week. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Liza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen with help this week from Sean McHenry. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Daniel Ramirez is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Satara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.